This podcast is made possible by listener support on Patreon. If you would like to support the podcast, please visit patreon.com slash Sam Reed's Near-Death Experiences. Why should I be frightened of dying? You know reason for it. You better go sometimes. Hello, welcome to the Sam Reed's Near-Death Experiences podcast. Uh, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you're well wherever you are around the world. Today, this episode may be a little inconvenient for some of the notions that we've built up about what near-death experiences can be. You know, I mentioned many times that it's always an individual experience, and um, but still, we this kind of culture has emerged around the whole phenomena of near-death experiences that is very light and loving and and spiritual and and wonderful and very peaceful but not every experience adheres to that kind of um, flavor I guess and so I'm going to be reading two today that uh, aren't necessarily in line with the usual kind of story that we see of of a bright light and wonderful peace and bliss and all that. Um, I'm going to read them together just for the sake of convenience. And the first one is a fear-death experience um, by a man named John. And then the second one is a near-death experience by a woman named Sandy. And both of these are relatively recent. And so I want to try to be sensitive to that as, as we talk about them because... Um, well, at least in the case of Sandy, it's it was quite a traumatic experience, and so I don't I want to be careful how I I talk about it. So, um, John's occurred about a year ago, and and Sandy's uh, at least as far as whenever this episode is released um, occurred a, f- a few weeks ago in the middle of, of June. So, um, you can read their stories um, on the nderf.org website, which I'll post the links to in in the description of the episode. And then I'm also going to read a letter from the psychologist Carl Jung to um, a priest in the Catholic Church, and I think it might help help us understand how we can fit these um, experiences that don't really um, jive with our usual understanding of of NDEs. his letter might be able to help make the experience bigger, which is what I want to try to do. I want to look at it in all its variations and forms and not just stick to the ones that um, are nice to listen to and are peaceful. So I I hope you you still enjoy uh, listening to this episode and and that you get something out of it. So we will start with John's experience and and then follow with Sandy's. So Without any further ado, here is John's fear-death experience and Sandy's near-death experience. John's fear-death experience. I just got back into motorcycle riding and bought a Honda VFR 1200F motorcycle. When leaving the parking lot at work, I gave the motorcycle way too much power. The back wheel spun and I was thrown off the bike. I remember hearing the revving of the engine and then I had this experience. After the experience, I was thrown off the bike and my body was slammed on the ground. Just after hearing the engine rev up very loudly, I was instantly teleported to a desert. The ground was sandy but solid and I could smell the desert air. I've done military service in Kuwait, Qatar, and Afghanistan, so I know what it smells like. It was hot, but I felt a cool breeze. In front of me was a rocky outcrop, or cliff face, that extended from the ground to about 20 feet high. On top, there was a desert tree with no foliage, and it looked dry as you would expect. The sky pulsed quickly from a sky blue to a deep purple and then back again. It was as if the days were speedily passing by. The bright daylight on the cliff face stayed exactly the same. 
I was aware of something observing me, but I didn't see anything. I was in awe at the sky, but was slightly fearful at the fact that I was in a desert. I had a sense of dullness and indifference as well. I then got snapped back to reality as I was thrown from my bike and hit the ground. I was helped up by my work colleagues, and they moved my bike for me. I went to the hospital the next day for a neck x-ray, but this terrible person made me wait for two hours before telling me they don't do x-rays. So I went to work. I felt sick and had a sore neck and shoulder for a few weeks. I think I very nearly broke my neck, but my helmet saved my life. Sandy's near-death experience. My experience two days ago was the most terrifying feeling I had ever encountered. I lay on the cold ground as the world went on around me. I could hear every sound, every footstep, and every breath of my friends closest to me. I felt my heart beating like nothing before. I felt myself losing touch with the reality. I couldn't move. All I wanted to do was scream and yell, but I couldn't. I started to feel myself fade further away, but yet I knew exactly where I was lying. Although I was there, I was a million miles away. My friends tell me that I blacked out and was unresponsive, yet I can tell them exactly what they were talking about, where they were, and what they had in their hands at the time. I saw everything, despite my eyes being closed. I tried to hold on to memories, but nothing was working as everything was fading. Then something was with me. It terrified me. I saw darkness that felt so dark and evil. I was trying to scream but couldn't. Everything I tried to hold on to faded while something was pushing me and telling me to move and go with them. I felt such a horrible presence that it terrifies me even now as I think about it. I woke up in an ambulance and was told my heart had stopped for 12 minutes. I was told that I had no pulse or brain movement. I feel like I have been shoved into a body that is no longer my own. I feel like nothing matters and I am having problems readjusting. Okay, so that was John's fear-death experience and Sandy's near-death experience. Like I mentioned in the introduction, I, I feel like this might be a little inconvenient for a lot of the kind of mythology that we've, we've kind of spun around the idea of near-death experiences, like meeting your loved ones, bright light, uh, happiness, joy, meeting God or Christ or some religious figure. And the simple truth of it is that that's not always what people experience, and it and I don't know why someone experiences what what they experience. I mean, that's an unanswerable question, and I'm not going to attempt to do it. It seems sometimes to be in line with what someone believes or expects or or just their general uh, worldview. But it's it's not something that I can I can pinned down uh, by any stretch of the uh, imagination. And the fact that, you know, at least for Sandy, that this experience was extremely traumatic and and that she's still dealing with, and that's not something that I would feel comfortable speculating about why that she had to go through that. And I think I would speak for everyone listening and saying that our hearts go out to her and hope that she is able to, to um, feel feel better and feel more at ease with with what she's gone through and it's the simple fact that it's not always something that that you know a near death experience is not always you know rainbows and lights and clouds and amazing feelings it's it's can be considerably more than that and and that is the reason that I am reading this because I feel like I would remit be remiss not to not to talk about it and and what this does is it it you know what I'm uh, hope to talk about is just how this makes our experience of the divine bigger, instead of being this narrow mythology of or story of of 
you know, meeting religious figures in bliss and light and love, and that's all wonderful and great and and absolutely valid. But we've we've seen time and again that each person has an individual experience, and we can only look at the broad strokes. And these experiences that we were reading today just are evidence that near-death experiences and fear-death experiences and all of these different uh, phenomena are can be more than than what they're usually purported to be. And so from an interest of trying to understand what what these experiences are, I think it's important for us to include them, um, even though they don't you know, kind of line up with the usual usual kind of story. And I think that's that's something that's very important to do. Now, in an attempt to to try to share what's been influencing me and my my approach to looking at these topics, I'm going to share a letter from uh, the psychologist Carl Jung, who makes a frequent uh, appearance in <laughs> these episodes. And uh, to a uh, friend of his, his uh, father, Victor White, who was a uh, priest in the Catholic Church. And so the, as you will hear in the footnote towards the beginning, this, this uh, letter is kind of explaining Jung's thinking and uh, reacting to a letter that uh, Father White had written about uh, Jung's comment that Christ is no longer a complete um, symbol of the self. And I, I guess I should probably try to explain a little bit what that means. Uh, Jung saw the self as representing the entirety of a person's both conscious and unconscious. So a person's ego and who they think they are and their memories and and then also the the unconscious side of them, both their where the dreams that they have come from, the visions, the any inner phenomenal experience would be represented in this giant kind of umbrella term of the self. And in this letter, he, the reason I'm reading it is because Jung talks about um, how our picture of God tends to be a lot smaller than it probably should be that we should include the darkness that we experience in life and in our dreams and uh, in our experience, that that should be given to God as well as as a, an aspect of God. And so he will kind of explain his thinking along those lines and, and by saying that Christ is not a complete uh, symbol of the self, he refers to it, Christ lacks that darker half of things that we um see, you know, everywhere and and at every time and and that hopefully is is being integrated. So that is I hope that you know, I can kind of help to make sense of of when we run into these experiences that don't usually fit our kind of NDE narrative of light and love and clouds and bliss and and meeting loved ones and meeting God and all that stuff that there's still uh, ways that we can understand them that that hopefully will will be able to bring together with the more familiar story to to make it a bigger um, a bigger myth and a bigger idea of what it means to be human and our relation to to the divine and, and that which we um, encounter. So um, I'll hopefully try to explain the letter a little more after I read it. There are lots of little references to things like that are written in Latin and and kind of an old-fashioned writing style. So I hope that's not too distracting. And um, I'll I'll read it and I'll see if there's any things that I need to clear up as we go along. So here is uh, C.G. Jung's letter to. Father Victor White. To Father Victor White, 24 November, 1953. Dear Victor, forget for once dogmatics and listen to what psychology has to say concerning your problem. 
Christ as a symbol is far from being invalid, although he is one side of the self and the devil the other. Footnote. In a letter of 8 November, White said that Jung seemed to create a dilemma by maintaining that Christ is no longer an adequate and valid symbol of the self, a misunderstanding which Jung tries to correct here. End of footnote. This pair of opposites is contained in the Creator as his right and left hand, as Clemens Romanus says. From the psychological standpoint, the experience of God the Creator is the perception of an overpowering impulse issuing from the sphere of the unconscious. We don't know whether this influence or compulsion deserves to be called good or evil, although we cannot prevent ourselves from welcoming or cursing it, giving it a bad or good name according to our subjective condition. Thus Yahweh has either aspect, because he is essentially the creator, primus motor, and because he is yet unreflected in his whole nature. With the Incarnation, the picture changes completely, as it means that God becomes manifest in the form of man, who is conscious and therefore cannot avoid judgment. He simply has to call the one good and the other evil. It is a historical fact that the real devil only came into existence together with Christ. Though Christ was God, as man he was detached from God, and he watched the devil falling out of heaven removed from God as he, Christ, was separated from God insomuch as he was human. In his utter helplessness on the cross, he even confessed that God had forsaken him. The Deus Pater would leave him to his fate, as he always strafes those whom he has filled before with this abundance by breaking his promise. This is exactly what S. Johannes Acruse describes as the dark night of the soul. It is the reign of darkness, which is also God, but an ordeal for man. The Godhead has a double aspect, and as Master Eckhart says, God is not blissful in his mere Godhead, and that is the reason for his incarnation. But becoming man, he becomes at the same time a definite being, which is this and not that. Thus the very first thing that Christ must do is to sever himself from his shadow and call it the devil. Sorry, but the Gnostics of Irenaeus already knew it. When a patient in our days is about to emerge from an unconscious condition, he is instantly confronted with his shadow, and he has to decide for the good, otherwise he goes down the drain. Nolens volens, he imitates Christ and follows his example. The first step on the way to individuation consists in the discrimination between himself and the shadow. In this stage, the good is the goal of individuation, and consequently Christ represents the self. The next step is the problem of the shadow. In dealing with darkness, you have to cling to the good, otherwise the devil devours you. You need every bit of your goodness in dealing with evil and just there. To keep the light alive in the darkness, that's the point, and only there your candle makes sense. Now tell me how many people you know who can say with any verisimilitude that they have finished their dealings with the devil and consequently can chuck the Christian symbol overboard. As a matter of fact, our society has not even begun to face its shadow or to develop those Christian virtues so badly needed in dealing with the powers of darkness. Our society cannot afford the luxury of cutting itself loose from the imitatio Christi, even if it should know that the conflict with the shadow, i.e. Christ versus Satan, is only the first step on the way to the faraway goal of the unity of the self in God. It is true, however, that the imitatio Christi leads you into your own very real and Christ-like conflict with the darkness. And the more you are engaged in this war and in these attempts at peacemaking helped by the anima, the more you begin to look forward beyond the Christian aeon to the oneness of the Holy Spirit. 
He is the pneumatic state the Creator attains to through the phase of incarnation. He is the experience of every individual that has undergone the complete abolition of his ego through the absolute opposition expressed by the symbol Christ versus Satan. The state of the Holy Spirit means a restitution of the original oneness of the unconscious on the level of consciousness. That is alluded to, as I see it, by Christ's Logion, ye are gods. This state is not quite understandable yet. It is a mere anticipation. The later development from the Christian aeon to the one of the Spiritus has been called the Evangelium Eternum by Gioacchino da Fiore in a time when the great tearing apart had just begun. Such vision seems to be granted by divine grace as a sort of consolamentum, so that man is not left in a completely hopeless state during the time of darkness. We are actually in the state of darkness viewed from the standpoint of history. We are still within the Christian aeon, and just beginning to realize the age of darkness where we shall need Christian values to the utmost. In such a state, we cannot possibly dismiss Christ as an invalid symbol, although we clearly foresee the approach of his opposite. Yet we don't see and feel the latter as the preliminary step toward the future union of the divine opposites, but rather as a menace against everything that is good, beautiful, and holy to us. The advent of the devil does not invalidate the Christian symbol of the self. On the contrary, it complements it. It is a mysterious transmutation of both, since we are living in a society that is unconscious of this development and far from understanding the importance of the Christian symbol, we are called upon to hinder its invalidation, although some of us are granted the vision of a future development. But none of us could safely say that he has accomplished the assimilation and integration of the shadow. Since the Christian church is the community of all those having surrendered to the principle of the imitatio Christi, this institution, i.e. such a mental attitude, is to be maintained until it is clearly understood what the assimilation of the shadow means. Those that foresee must, as it were, stay behind their vision in order to help and to teach, particularly so if they belong to the church as her appointed servants. You should not mind if some of your analysands are helped out of the church. It is their destiny and their adventure. Others will stay in it anyhow. It does not matter whether the ecclesiastical powers that be approve of your vision or not. When the time is fulfilled, a new orientation will irresistibly break through, as one has seen in the case of the Conceptio Maculata and the Assumptio, which both deviate from the time-hallowed principle of apostolic authority a thing unheard of before. It would be a lack of responsibility and a rather auto-erotic attitude if we were to deprive our fellow beings of a vitally necessary symbol before they had a reasonable chance to understand it thoroughly. And all this because it is not complete if envisaged from an anticipated stage we ourselves in our individual lives have not yet made real. Anybody going ahead is alone or thinks he is alone at times, no matter whether he is in the church or in the world. Your practical work as director of conscience brings to you individuals having something in their character that corresponds with certain aspects of your personality, like the many men fitting themselves as stones into the edifice of the tower in the shepherd of Hermas. Whatever your ultimate decision will be, you ought to realize beforehand that staying in the church makes sense, as it is important to make people understand what the symbol of Christ means, and such understanding is indispensable to any further development. There is no way round it, as little as we can eliminate from our life old age, illness, and death, or Buddha's Nidana chain of evils. The vast majority of people are still in such an unconscious state that one should almost protect them from the full shock of the real imitatio Christi. Moreover, we are still in the Christian aeon, threatened with the complete annihilation of our world. 
as there are not only the many, but also the few, somebody is entrusted with the task of looking ahead and talking of the things to be. That is partially my job, but I have to be very careful not to destroy the things that are. Nobody will be so foolish as to destroy the foundations when he is adding an upper story to his house. And how can he build it really if the foundations are not yet properly laid? Thus, making the statement that Christ is not a complete symbol of the self, I cannot make it complete by abolishing it. I must keep it, therefore, in order to build up the symbol of perfect contradiction in God by adding this darkness to the lumen de lumine, the light of lights. Thus I am approaching the end of the Christian aeon, and I am to take up Giochino's anticipation and Christ's prediction of the coming of the paraclete. This archetypal drama is at the same time exquisitely psychological and historical. We are actually living in the time of the splitting of the world and of the invalidation of Christ. But an anticipation of a faraway future is no way out of the actual situation. It is a mere consolamentum for those despairing at the atrocious possibilities of the present time. Christ is still the valid symbol. Only God himself can invalidate him through the paraclete. Now that is all I can say. It is a long letter and I am tired. If it is not helpful to you, at least it shows what I think. I have seen X. She is as right as she can be, and as she usually is, and just as wrong as her nature permits, altogether as hopeful as a hysterical temperament ever can be. You have probably heard of the little celebration we had here round the Nag Hammadi Gnostic Codex given to the Institute by a generous donor. There was even a note in the Times. It was a disproportionate affair, and neither my doing nor liking. But I was maneuvered into saying in the end a few words about the relation between Gnosticism and psychology. My best wishes. Yours cordially, C.G. Okay, so that was Jung's letter to Father Victor White. I hope it was interesting, at least. Um, I will do my best to try to clarify it and explain things to, to try and tie it back into why why I'm reading this letter on this podcast to, to try to make, make sense of, of these different experiences that we come across that don't quite fit the usual idea we have of, of near-death experiences. It's going to be very difficult to do, so I, I hope I don't, don't mess it up. Um, I guess to start with, we can talk about, you know, when Jung talks about God and Christ and the devil and all these different uh, religious ideas, it's important to mention that he's not actually talking about the metaphysical God or the metaphysical Christ or the metaphysical devil, you know, what they actually are or what they actually represent. Um, what he is talking about is how they appear to us. He, he talks about their image and how their image appears to us over time and how they've changed, um, how God is represented in the psyche of man um, as, as, you know, as, a, as an image that we cannot fully grasp what God is or, or what Christ is. It's, it's something that comes to us that we can only see through our limited faculties, I suppose, through our experiences of, of divinity. So he's not actually talking about what God is. And, and that's something that I feel like is important to say because I try to take the same line in that I don't, I don't know what happens when we die. Um, I, you know, people write down their experiences and I take them at their word, but I, I would never talk about God, what God actually is in, in totality. I can only talk about how he appears to us through these experiences and, and, or, you know, or other beings, whatever they are, I can only talk about how they appear to us. And, and hopefully that, 
you know, gives us a better idea of of what you know these experiences are and and what it means to be human. Um, and it, it helps me have a bit of distance, you know, to where I'm not I'm not making any claims about somebody's religion or or beliefs or anything. It's just how how these things manifest themselves to us. So with that kind of <laughs> little uh, footnote to start, um, I guess we can talk about the letter. And, and he, Jung is talking about how Christ is no longer an adequate symbol of the self. Like we mentioned before, um, the self was Jung's idea of an archetype of the totality of our experience and and our totality of our being, that it's the uh, conscious and unconscious sides of, of man put together. It's the uh, whole psyche, that which we can experience and feel and know and remember, and that which comes to us, that which we can't control, that which has its own volition, its own um, agency in a way, you know, like our dreams that come to us and, and these different symbolic figures that we often meet in, in dreams and visions and drug trips and all these different things that they, those would be part of the idea of the self. And so uh, Jung talks about how the uh, idea of Christ is, is one of perfection, of, of um, beauty and goodness and all these wonderful things, and that if we take that to be the only representation of of our psyche and our our story, then that leaves out this huge swath of evil and bad and darkness that we encounter in our daily lives and and in our dreams and in our experience throughout you know worldwide it's you know to say that there's no evil would be just foolish and so as a symbol uh, a representation of our total psychology our total conscious and unconscious sides of ourselves that Christ is not fully representative of of what we actually encounter and and to get a full idea of of or a full image it's it's some kind of um, bringing together of the idea of, of Christ and, and Satan, that to have a full picture of of who we are and our humanity and our psychology and um, our souls, so to speak, one has to include that dark, evil element into things, and that ultimately both both of those sides, the the good side and the bad side would belong to this image of God. Jung uh, mentions many times that the image of God is usually indistinguishable from, from the, uh, I, the archetype of the, the self, the idea of, of the totality of the psyche and that. So the, um, a, a, full, a fuller picture of God includes the evil side of things. And, you know, I guess how I would think about it is that, you know, it if the God that is portrayed in the New Testament or or portrayed even in some people's near-death experiences of, of being a solely good, father, loving, bright, light kind of God... If that was only the case, then that clearly, you know, we we clearly don't uh, uh, represent that goodness in our daily lives. To any stretch of the imagination, there is a great deal of of our activity in our lives that don't incorporate um, or, or don't or don't represent the goodness of God that. There is evil and there is darkness and there is um, material things that 
that are are you know everywhere, and and that's uh, not something that fits in with this picture of of God. And so this is you know a major problem. And Jung's solution is to give to give well everything to God. If like we've kind of discussed, if the way we think of God as some kind of totality of of everything, of infinity or of, of all things, even in uh, Hafur's near-death experience a couple episodes ago, she describes God as everything and nothing at the same time. So again, we have this this uh, conjunction of opposites, but we have this idea of God being a, the totality of both everything and nothing, like there's nothing that's not God. And so from Jung's line of thinking that that includes the darker side of things and that includes the evil and uh, bad actions and and things that we kind of frown upon morally. And he also, you know, dives into, in his book, Answer to Job, he dives into uh, Yahweh's behavior <laughs> in uh, the Old Testament and and how he kind of conspired with Satan to test Job, and and then subsequently how the image of God transformed through the incarnation in Christ. That that represents a humanization of God, that a God that becomes sympathetic to man because he is man, um, and then suffers as a result, and and becomes more human and transforms into a loving father, and then. Jung's, I guess the Jung saw the final stage of the Christian myth as uh, the coming of the Paraclete, which he mentions in this letter, and that's the idea of the the coming of the Holy Spirit. You know, first we had the Father, and then we had the Son, and then the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, would be this final um, restitution of oneness with God, and and he saw that as each person. Uh, growing their consciousness to such a degree that they would know themselves to such deg- to such a degree that uh, they would each person would individually become a Christ, that each person would become deified in their own uh, and have their own relationship with with God or the divine, um, and and that with such a high level of consciousness that it would all by being kind of confronted with all these different opposites that God represents all these different tendencies that conflict with one another that that the the pain of being pulled between those opposite um, uh, pairs of opposites that are inherent in and in the transcendent contradictory nature of God that that tension would be painful and would be almost a suffering upon a cross kind of as a uh, symbol of, of of what this struggle and tension would be like and and that that would be a, a way that each of us would be um, become Christ and and he mentions in this in this letter the um, saying of of Jesus that ye are gods and and he kind of says that we don't know exactly what that means yet, but he kind of intuitively thinks that that will be um, something down the line that we will each have to deal with. So that that's kind of Jung's take on the Christian myth. And I only get into that so this letter doesn't seem... so it makes more sense, I, I hope. And But just to kind of take Jung's point... You know, I, I know this is focused from a particularly Christian perspective that might have to do with the fact that he's speaking to a Catholic priest, but Jung looked at many different cultures and religions, and and in all cultures and religions, it's there's I, I, I can't think of one that only has a good God and no representation of, of the dark side of things. Now, usually... I, I, it's split off into a different deity or a different god, the the kind of evildoer or the trickster or some kind of different deity that's separate from the good, loving god. But 
this is something that we see cross-culturally. So it, although Jung kind of talks about the uh, Christianity psychologically because that's what he is most familiar with, he also discusses other religions, and, and that's something that I'm very interested in. So he sees as the eventual goal of what he calls individuation is the growth of consciousness and and knowing oneself to such a degree that our conscious and unconscious sides will be rejoined. Um, in in this letter from the very start, he he says this. He says the. From the psychological standpoint, the experience of God the Creator is the perception of an overpowering impulse issuing from the sphere of the unconscious. And we don't know whether this influence or compulsion deserves to be called good or evil, although we cannot prevent ourselves from welcoming or cursing it, giving it a, a bad or a good name according to our subjective condition. And so he, he associates whenever someone has been overcome by a force within them, a uh, strong emotion or impulse or instinct, that this is almost as if they were possessed by a god or the power of God, that they are not in control of themselves. And, you know, if you think of in our daily lives, this can, you know, it, this can mani manifest itself uh, in many different ways, both good and bad, like he says, that we kind of assign different values to it. For instance, just last night, I was fairly frustrated, and and I I kind of got really mad and and hit my fist against the door because I I was overtaken by something, and or you know you see stories on the news where someone does something incredible because they they have um, they are compelled by some kind of force within them to go save someone who's who's drowning you know we see these forces within ourselves that kind of overtake and possess us manifest themselves in, in many different ways and so uh, I guess the goal from the union standpoint would be to to have to have the the reaction to have the emotion and not let the emotion have you or the reaction have you that we by recognizing all the um things about ourselves that we'd rather not look at that we can grow our consciousness to such degree that that we can be uh, hopefully that our will um matches that of God or that of the divine in any given moment because sometimes there's sometimes you need to follow your instincts and sometimes you don't and it's hard to tell which and the whole goal is to be conscious and free enough to make one's own decision and, and not be um, driven unconsciously by forces for good or for evil and so I think, you know, that's an extremely intriguing idea and one that is very difficult to, to put into practice. And it, it certainly takes a lot of self-examination and, and understanding. And, and Jung gets in, towards the end of the letter, gets into the whole societal kind of side of things that we're, we're reaching the end of this kind of Christian aeon where we here in the west we still kind of have christian dreams um and still rely on a, a whole underlying strata of christian symbolism and mythology in our our culture and and that's currently changing to a uh he he refers to the age of darkness which i presume would be the gradual kind of rise of a a kind of Luciferian, uh, rationalistic, materialistic kind of culture that that um, kind of negates the old spiritual values that we had in the past, and and so 
he Jung is, I guess, trying to explain to Father White that this all of this is happening in a natural way to that is complementary to what uh, as a compensation to um, the collective psyche of of man that this is all kind of a natural progression from from the highly religious spiritual um, uh, I guess historical undercurrents that we've emerged from and into a more modern uh, rise of a scientific kind of secular worldview and and how eventually the the goal would be to bring the two together and in, in a kind of integration and he just kind of speculates about about how that would look and how i i suppose he would say that it would it would rely on each individual's relation to their own unconscious half of of themselves so the reason I wanted to read that letter was to try to at least, you know, try to explain what, what has been influencing me and how I look at this phenomena of near-death experience. Because like I mentioned before, it would be great if if every near-death experience had a, a wonderful, bright, loving God and and was completely happy and and you know just a feeling of overwhelming peace and and joy and and many near death experiences are like that but not all of them are and it's that individual element that that whatever for whatever reason requires each person to have their own experience that um, it's important for us to be able to to include that in our discussion of, of what NDEs are or what they, you know, well, I, I'll never be able to say exactly what they are, but at least give us a, make the the idea of them a bit bigger than than what they're usually kind of pigeonholed as. Um, because in Sandy's uh, near-death experience, it, it, you know, clearly she has some awareness of of what's going on, she's conscious, although her heart had stopped. So that's a classic near-death experience element. Um, we don't know what drugs she had taken and how that would have affected her perception or, or whatnot, but she clearly had a very traumatic, scary experience of something that was that she encountered that was not under her control. And so... This is, like I said, this is an important side of the near-death experience for us to explore. Um, and in John's fear-death experience, that one, again, it has, it's not necessarily in, representing anything evil or bad, but it's, it's much more of a neutral kind of, um, I don't want to say apathetic, but, but kind of natural and not necessarily very steeped in anything particularly religious or or you know spiritual in a way it's it's just a natural scenes of of a desert and a cliff face and this image of a tree which i think is pretty uh, interesting in itself but and so it's not necessarily something that we're we usually encounter when we look at near-death experiences or fear-death experiences that it's it's kind of much more neutral in its content. Although that being said, he does discuss uh, this kind of mixture and um, uh, I guess a opposition of, of conflicting emotions that he has. He, he mentions that he has a sense of awe as he's watching the sky. The sky is changing from from blue to purple, like rapidly and it kind of suggests a, a passing of time and at the same time he he mentions that he's kind of fearful because he's in a desert so there's a bit of apprehension there he also talks about how he is uh, he feels like he's being watched by something and he doesn't know what and that's something that you know we've kind of discussed before and and uh, uh, some episodes a while back when we were talking about the uh, image and the symbol of, of the eye of God or the evil eye of, of 
being made an object of another subject, especially in such a, um, I don't know, intense experience that it can, it's, it can provoke a sense of anxiety of, of being seen by God, um, so to speak. You know, he does not identify that who is looking at him or watching him. He just reports the feeling of being watched, which is interesting in itself because it suggests that there is some kind of other presence in this experience that is not just him. And so, you know, we've, in that episode a while back when we talked about the eye of God and that image, we we discussed that it can be a kind of a good thing that's watching over you or a slightly, uh, you know, anxiety-provoking experience to be seen by by something so large and, and intimidating in a way. And, you know, that's... Something that I guess kind of echoes over into Sandy's near-death experience that she was uh, encountered an entity that was, you know, looking at her and and terrified her. Um, She, in the answers to her questions at the end of her near-death experience, mentioned that she, since the experience, she does not uh, like to be alone. She always wants to have her boyfriend around to be with her and... And, you know, while I cannot compare to the experience that she's had, I, I do um, empathize with that feeling of, of not wanting to be alone. There's been a couple times where I've had some particularly uh, scary dreams. And when I've woken up in the middle of the night, I, I you know, had that feeling of not wanting to be alone, of of having been seen by something and and that's that can be very very um uh unsettling i suppose and you know if we if we then try to incorporate what i discussed in jung's letter the i i, I want to try to tie this all back in is the reason I read that letter is because it's discussing that our encounters with with divinity, whatever that may be, are are not always going to be a um, wonderful and light experience. It can just as 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 uh, equally be a negative experience of of you know, terror and fear. And that's something that, that we, I, I think we've kind of lost that sense in a way, you know, back in, in, uh, older traditions, such as in the old, old Testament and in, in many different cultures around the world, you know, people, people did rituals and sacrifice things to propitiate God, to, to assuage God, to, um, not, or to to be merciful towards them and and I think that's that's wise in a way you know they say that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of god and I think to some degree we've lost that that you know we've kind of thought of of god as such a loving and kind being that we have forgotten that we should also in addition to our love have a healthy <laughs> healthy fear or healthy perhaps respect for for the dark side of God. And that's something that, that Jung discusses, that that's, um, you know, as we move forward, we're going to have to, to deal with, you know, these experiences that don't necessarily uh, look the way we'd, and sound the way we'd like them to, that they... They can be frightening and and intense, and and we need to have the respect to be able to acknowledge that as as a part of divinity, um, just as much as the light side. And similar to a, a bulk of Jung's letter was discussing that, you know, just because I am suggesting we need to recognize this darker half of of uh, divinity does not you know, take away from the lighter side. He he goes to great lengths to describe how necessary the 
uh, lighter half of of the um, Godhead is necessary and, and the symbol of Christ in, in dark times to have that. Um, and I would I would extend that to you know in our case to saying that you know just because I am with this episode exploring these darker and and you know less <laughs> darker and and perhaps less traditional if you could think of it as, as a near-death experience being traditional, but a uh, perhaps a less explored side of near-death experiences. Um, just because I'm, I'm looking at that with this episode does not in any way subtract from all the amazing, wonderful experiences that, that people have and that people report. Uh, you know, if, if you have had a, um, an amazing, blissful, peaceful encounter um, and a near-death experience um, with heaven or the afterlife for God or Jesus, you know, that is still absolutely 100% valid and and really, you know, it's even peaceful to read and to, to hear the, the wisdom and the, the comfort that comes from those stories. And so this this uh like like Jung's letter this is not to subtract in any way from from those uh perhaps more traditional more uh uh standard near death experiences although that's kind of an oxymoron but um my whole point in doing this is to explore um the full range and variety of of what near-death experiences are, and ultimately what we are, and and how how we are reflected in our experiences and the stories and mythologies that emerge from these these experiences that we have of of what's beyond us, and so that that is my goal, and and I hope that at least that this is. Uh, interesting to explore and not something that um, upsets too many people. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, I hope this was interesting and and not too uh, rambly like I usually get, but um, I bet that's what you expect by now. Um, uh, If you would like to reach out to me, you can do so um, by sending me an email at samreadsneardeathexperiences at gmail.com. You can check out our Facebook page, we, uh, I have episodes on Spotify. I have some episodes on YouTube. I'm getting more. I don't know. <laughs> I only realized it uh, a few weeks ago, but I don't know whether you all have been able to download episodes from iTunes. You may have been able to, but I hadn't enabled downloads on my SoundCloud, which is where I post things. So I went back and I enabled downloads for for all the episodes, so ideally you should be able to download them if you want. I don't know whether you have been able to or not in the past, but now you should be able to at least. Um, and if you uh, want to support the podcast, uh, you can check out my Patreon page. We've got a lot of different options of, of things that you, you can get in return for uh, for helping to support the podcast, and, and that uh, is really greatly appreciated. And um, if you like um, this episode and the podcast, please leave a five-star review on iTunes because that really helps us out. So I think we will end now with a quote on death. Okay, so because this episode featured Jung so prominently, I figured I would close out with a quote from him about death. This is coming from his red book, Liber Novus, and I may have mentioned it before, but it was this uh, book that kind of accounts this time in his life where he was being swamped by visions and by almost borderline schizophrenic kind of psychic, um, I don't know, um, forces kind of taking over him. And what he did was he went into himself and interacted with these uh, figures in his unconscious and he this kind of served as the basis of a lot of his ideas that he put into practice in his psychology. And so it's 
like I mentioned before, he has a lot of very intuitive ideas about the path of, of I don't know, the development of, of humanity and, and consciousness and stuff. And a lot of that comes from this encounter that he had, his own spiritual encounter with uh, the divine, so to speak. So this is coming from his, his red book. Uh, let me pull it up here. I thought this was a very interesting quote that was really kind of in line with, with what he discussed in his letter. So, that is the ambiguity of the God. He is born from a dark ambiguity and rises to a bright ambiguity. Unequivocalness is simplicity and leads to death, but ambiguity is the way of life. Mm-hmm.